The words that we are looking at from our precious word are from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, Merry Christmas. Many of you have seen the Christmas classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. came out in 1964, the stop-action film that has been shown every, every year since, as far as I know. It's a story of Rudolph, who feels out of place because he's got this red nose, and he meets up with Hermie the Elf. Hermie feels out of place because... He doesn't want to make toys. He wants to be a dentist. So the two of them join together and eventually run away, and they end up on the island of misfit toys, the place where rejected toys are sent, toys that feel unwanted and unloved. As we celebrate this Christmas season, many of us find it bittersweet. It's a wonderful season. It's fun. We give gifts. There's celebration. But many of us find it a painful time as well due to family struggles, due to personal issues, personal pain of some kind, unfulfilled longings for love and connection, or just simply deep feelings of feeling in the midst of life, feeling unwanted and unloved. In fact, I I think we all feel like misfits at times. And as we look around us in our world, everybody else seems to be doing a lot better than we are. (laughs) Social media has only made it worse because everybody puts their best foot forward on social media, and so we compare ourselves and we think, well, they have a life that I don't have. They seem to be doing so much better than I am. And our lives just don't seem to measure up. That's what's so great about our passage today. (laughs) Matthew chapter 1. Because the clear message, I think, of this chapter is this. Jesus came for people like us. The misfits of the world. Those who don't have it together. Those 
who don't look so good, those who are truly misfits. And the message is that he wants all of us, no matter who we are, every one of us to come and join the misfits at the manger because we all are welcome there and we all belong. Let's pray and let's look at this passage together. Lord, we admit that we do often feel left out, feel unwanted, feel unloved. It's part of being in this broken world and Yet you call us to the manger. You call us to come, and you call all to come. All misfits. May you you encourage our hearts today as to how great and awesome your love really is and how inclusive it is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew begins his great gospel book, and the story of Jesus' birth with a genealogy. Apparently, he didn't take rhetoric about how you're supposed to start with a really gripping introduction or something, you know? He starts with a genealogy (laughs) where he traces Jesus' family line from Abraham all the way to Joseph and Mary. Now, ancient genealogies were common, and they were meant to give legitimacy to a king. See, I've been born from a royal line and all these wonderful people. And usually in a genealogy, you'd kind of play around with it and leave out the bad eggs. I mean, you don't want to be too connected to those kinds of people. But Matthew's genealogy is different than anything we find in ancient history. And a close look at it shows us that Matthew has a clear message he's trying to send us. Now, this genealogy has a lot of names. Uh, I was going to have Marsha read all these names, but I thought that might be difficult. So, Merry Christmas, Marsha. You didn't have to read all those names. (laughs) But it begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and it goes on through some 42 names, I believe. One of the things that strikes you as you read the whole thing is that a lot of bad kings are included. You've got people like Rehoboam who caused the division of the country into two different kingdoms. You have Manasseh who God says is really the reason that the whole nation of Judah got sent into exile in Babylon. And then you've got all these others mixed in that are are just a mess. And then there's a whole bunch of nobodies that we don't know anything about. But their names are in the genealogy kind of strange. But the most striking thing about this genealogy is that it includes four women. Now, the seed was passed through the male line, it was understood, and therefore you would never, ever include women in a genealogy. Women carried no social weight, and having them in the line takes away from the social standing of whoever the royal king is that 
has been born. So these four names of women stand out like neon lights in a genealogy like this. I mean, you've got to understand, this was a big deal. But worse than that, the women that are mentioned are not the great women of the Old Testament that could have been mentioned, like Sarah, Rebecca, and others that were strong women of faith. Now, there were some women here, I will say, who had strong faith, but they were also women who were all four of questionable reputation for various reasons. You see, Matthew is really messing with the standards of the day. He's just not doing good genealogical writing. <laughs> so what is he doing? Why does he include these four women and these four in particular? What is God trying to say to us? Well, let's look at these four women to find out. The first one is mentioned in verse 3, as I just read, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. By Tamar. What's the story of Tamar? You may or may not remember. There were a couple Tamars of the Old Testament, but this one in particular who had the child, these twins, by Judah is mentioned in, in Genesis chapter 38. And believe me, this is one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible. When you read it, you just kind of think, how does this fit in? In fact, when I was getting my master's, I had to write an exegetical paper on that chapter because it was so challenging and we were all trying to figure out what it said. In the story... Judah has three sons. Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes. He has three sons, but the first son marries Tamar, and then he dies. Well, according to Jewish law, the next son needs to marry the widow so that the, the first son's family line can be carried on and not lost. So the second son married her, and then he died. Well, you can imagine what Judah's doing at that point. He's kind of thinking, I'm seeing a pattern here. <laughs> I don't really want to give my third son to her and see what happens then. He promises Tamar that when he gets old enough, he will match them up, but he doesn't do it. And so she gets older and older. She's seeing the writing on the wall. I'm never going to have an opportunity to marry. I'm never going to have an opportunity to have a son because she couldn't just leave the family at that point and go marry someone else. She was stuck. So what does she do? Well, Tamar knew her father-in-law and his weaknesses pretty well, and he was traveling on a road. She knew he was going to travel on that road, and so she disguised herself as a prostitute. And on that road then, he sees her, he makes a deal to sleep with her, and she gets pregnant with twins. According to Jewish law, she had had incest with her father-in-law, and they should be stoned to death. But instead, she's in the line of Messiah. <laughs> she schemed. She dressed as a prostitute. They should be put to death, and yet this R-rated story 
is included in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, instead of being stoned, she ends up having twins and is here in the line of the Messiah. She clearly was mistreated by Judah. That's obvious. But what's also obvious is that she broke the Jewish law. She was a schemer. She schemed to have incest. She took the law into her own hands. She made some really sinful choices in all of that, and yet here she is in the line of Jesus the Messiah. What's the message for us? The message is that no one is too sinful. Jesus welcomes all misfits at the manger. Maybe you felt like Tamar. You've been hurt by family or just by life, but out of that you made some bad choices. You chose some really bad paths and you feel that you're deserved then because of what you've done and your own sin. You deserve to be left out and now you feel like you're too much of a mess, too sinful, too much of a misfit to be included in the family of God, to really be loved by Jesus. And yet she's included. So what's the message No one's too sinful. Jesus welcomes all misfits to the manger. Second woman that's mentioned is Rahab the harlot. That's how we know her. Verse 5, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, etc., etc. Rahab. Well, you may know the story of Rahab, maybe not, but Rahab is, the story begins in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. Rahab was a Canaanite living in the city of Jericho. The Israelites were told to go and kill all the Canaanites to enter the land, and the first city they come to is Jericho. You know about Joshua marching around it seven times, and the walls fall, and, and the story of Rahab is that she has the background of a Canaanite, obviously, living in the land, and she's a prostitute. That's her profession. Not a great background. But she has some connection personally with the God of Israel, and she hides the spies, the Israeli, Israelite spies that come to spy out the city of Jericho, hides them, and then makes sure they're safe, and ends up being incorporated into the very line of Jesus, the Messiah. She had quite a sordid past, right? Canaanite, prostitute. According to the law, she should have been put to death. She didn't have a past to be proud of, not a name to put in a genealogy meant to impress the powers that be of your legitimacy as a king. And yet here she is. Maybe you're like Rahab. You feel like you're too stained. You've been too stained by life. Your past is too messed up. You don't have a past to be proud of. And you'd like to feel loved and accepted and really part of the family of God. And maybe even you've committed your life to Christ, but you still feel like an outsider. You feel like you can never shake your past off. It continues to haunt you. You're too stained to be included in God's people. And yet, here she is. (laughs) Jesus chose 
to highlight her name in his genealogy. What's the message? No one's too stained by a messed up past to be included in the family of God, to be loved by Jesus. Jesus welcomes all misfits at the manger. How about the third name, the third woman that's given here again in verse 5? Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. If you've studied, read the book of Ruth, you know that Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were most of the time sworn enemies of the nation of Israel. Story is that Naomi and her husband, who were Israelites, are in a famine in Bethlehem, and so they go to Moab to try to find enough food to live by, but Naomi's husband dies there. um, Ruth marries one of their sons, and he dies. And so, at that point, Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem, and Ruth commits herself to stay with Naomi. But Naomi is not a pleasant person. Her name means pleasant. But she says to the people of Bethlehem when she gets there, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitterness, because I'm bitter because the Lord let me down. Now Ruth then gets to know Boaz, and there's this questionable scene that no one knows quite what to do with where she shows up at the threshing floor where only men are supposed to be, and it says she uncovered his feet. Now, some have seen that as she seduced him. It's very possible. But at the very least, she's offering herself to him. It just raises questions about her. So here's a woman who has experienced tremendous loss. She lost her husband, her father-in-law. She tied herself to a woman that's really difficult, not pleasant. She leaves her home and goes somewhere else. Life's kind of tough for her. She's got some really bad circumstances she's experienced And yet God blesses her, and here she is in the godly line, despite all the misfortune she has been through. Maybe you've gone through some really hard stuff in your life. It might be physical, it might be emotional, it might be long-term depression, it might be all kinds of things, and maybe you feel broken by this cruel world, and you feel like you're just too broken to really be loved to really be part of the kingdom of God, to really belong to his people. But hear this. Ruth is included in the godly line. Jesus chose to come from her. This is to help us see that no one is too broken. No one is too broken to be included, to belong. All misfits are welcome at the manger. The fourth woman, her name's not even mentioned. (laughs) Verse 6, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and on and on. We all know who the wife of Uriah was, right? Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11 tells us that story. Bathsheba was married to a Gentile, Uriah the Hittite, so she was very possibly a Gentile like most of the other women we've talked about. We don't know. But she's bathing one day, and David looks down from his roof when he should be off fighting the war with his men, and he looks down and sees her, and he has her brought into his palace, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant, so he brings Uriah back and ends up having him killed, murders him because he's trying to cover up his own sin with Bathsheba. God confronts David with, through the Nathan, prophet Nathan, and, and he writes Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance. Now, some interpreters say that Bathsheba is at fault here. She enticed David because she just didn't like being married to Uriah. Well, I just don't see that anywhere in the text. In fact, in every place, she's shown as a victim, and David is shown to be the agent here, the sinful one, the one who caused her so much pain. In, a, in essence, Bathsheba is a victim of sexual assault as the king forced her to come. And then her husband is murdered. She's a victim of his sinfulness against her. And her name's not even mentioned because Matthew wants to make really clear. I want you to know who this woman is. She's one that experienced what David did to her and her husband Uriah was murdered. Let's not forget the story. So there are some of you who, like Bathsheba, have been victims of the sins of others. Perhaps assault of some kind or simply meanness or neglect or selfishness of somebody who's had power over you and you feel too damaged inside to really be loved and included in the kingdom of God. But she's included. (laughs) The message? No one's too damaged by the sins of others to be included in the family of God, to be deeply loved by Jesus. In fact, You are the very ones he came for. We are the very ones he came for. All misfits are welcome at the manger. It's remarkable that Matthew chooses four of the most difficult stories in the Old Testament, all four women marked by stain, by sin, by being Gentiles, by damage. They're all worthy of rejection according to the law. But Matthew is making a very clear point that that's exactly who Jesus came for. All misfits are welcome at the manger. All are welcome in the family of God. But now what about Mary? What about Mary, the mother of Jesus? Could she be included too? (laughs) Well, we know the the story, right? She's engaged to Joseph. Things are looking good. She's a young woman. And then suddenly, the Spirit shows up and says, you're going to have a child, and she's pregnant. And Joseph finds out she's pregnant. 
Now, according to Jewish law, if a woman who's betrothed becomes pregnant by her betrothed one, then you had to get married right away, but you'd be marked for the rest of your lives as those who didn't wait. It brought shame on the whole community. But notice that Joseph knows it's not his child. Maybe no one else does. But he does. And according to the law, if a woman slept with another man when she's betrothed, other than her betrothed one, she is to be taken out to be stoned to death, according to the law. Well, you can imagine what Joseph went through. It had to be very difficult. And there's a huge hint of that in verse 20 as it says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, that word considered only occurs twice in the New Testament, but the whole root of that word means to be angry, to be fuming within. I think Joseph was ticked. He was upset. This woman that I committed my life to, now she's pregnant. She obviously slept with another man, and he was struggling with it in anger. Now the angel comes, and to his credit, he submits and marries her, believes the Spirit, that this is really from the Spirit of God. And there's another hint at Joseph here, what kind of man he was, when it says in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man or a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. That word for just or righteous According to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the highest example of this, if you were a righteous man in New Testament days, that meant that you did everything according to the law. Right? You did it all right. But according to the law, Joseph should have had her put to death. And yet he's called a righteous man. Actually, we're getting a hint here at the whole purpose of the book of Matthew, because Matthew redefines righteousness as different from what the Pharisees were saying. You've heard it said in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you, Jesus says, I'm redefining righteousness to you. Actually, Joseph is following the prophets much more than the rigid law in his kind of justice. Rather than putting her to death, he shows her mercy and love, which is exactly what the prophet said in a number of places, but places like Matthew, or excuse me, Micah 6.8, where Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, or mankind, what is good. In the context, God is saying, I don't want all your sacrifices. I don't want you keeping all these laws. That's not the most important thing. He has shown you, O mankind, what is good but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's the kind of righteousness that Joseph lived out by wanting to show mercy to Mary by sending her away so she wouldn't be put to death by her community. But notice, Joseph, in marrying her, is showing the community, yeah, it's my child, I sinned 
before we were married, he takes on the shame of the whole community. And I think we don't understand, because we don't live in an honor-shame community or context quite like them, but this was incredibly difficult. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that Joseph and Mary, when they went to Bethlehem for the census, according to the rules of the day, only the male had to go in a family, not the female. And wouldn't it have made sense for Mary to have stayed in Nazareth with her family and stay there and have the baby, and then Joseph would come back? Why didn't that happen? Well, Again, this is conjecture, but I believe it's because Mary had so shamed her family that they were not supportive of her. And she had nobody that would support her and stay with her. And so she had to travel with Joseph to Bethlehem. And have you ever thought about the fact that Joseph's family was from Bethlehem? He had a ton of relatives there. And yet there was no room at the inn Why couldn't he stay with a relative? Because he'd shamed the whole family by getting her pregnant out of wedlock, as far as they knew. You see, Joseph took took on the shame of the community when he agreed to marry Mary. Mary was too rejected to really be included in the genealogy of the Messiah and to actually be the mother of the Messiah, right? (laughs) Some of you have heard of Trevor Noah. From South Africa, comedian, now he runs The Daily Show and and he can be a little off color, so I'm not necessarily recommending him. (laughs) But let me read something about his life. Trevor Noah's unlikely path from apartheid South Africa to the desk of the Daily Show began with a criminal act, his birth. Trevor was born to a white Swiss father and a black Zosa mother at a time when such a union was punishable by five years in prison. Living proof of his parents' indiscretion, Trevor was kept mostly indoors from the earliest years of his life, bound by the extreme and often absurd measures his mother took to hide him from a government that could, at any moment, steal him away. Trevor wrote an autobiography called Born a Crime. In it, he tells the story of being just a little boy and his parents had to meet secretly indoors. They could never be seen in public together, ever, because it was a crime. But one time they decided when he was just little that they would try to meet in a park and try to make this casual meeting happen. And as he's there with his mother, he sees his father, white father, walking across the park and he starts running over to him saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy! His mother grabs him and runs the other way. And the father takes off. That's how he lived life. And I I just think that's something that Jesus experienced growing up and Mary and Joseph as they were living this life where Jesus essentially was born a crime. Jesus grew up like that. Rejected and shamed by his community, he lived out this rejection 
Now, think with me for a minute. Why would the God of the universe, the creator of all of us, who sustains everything, who upholds everything by his powerful word, choose to be born in that kind of environment, to come that way, to invade our world in a way where he's got all these questionable people in his background that guaranteed he would be a victim of a shaming world that included so many broken and misfit people in his genealogy. Because he wanted us to know forever that everyone is welcome at the manger. There are many misfits at the manger. In fact, and please hear this, in fact, we are all misfits. Every one of us. And if you cannot admit you are a misfit, then you will never be welcome in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. We're all misfits, and if you cannot admit you're a misfit, you will never be welcome in the kingdom of God because that's who Jesus came for, a broken world. We're all broken, and when we admit it, he welcomes us with open arms. In the Island of Misfit Toys, in the Rudolph the Reindeer story, there was a follow-up movie which I've never seen, so I'm certainly not recommending it to you. came out in 2001, a computer-generated movie. But there was a song that was part of that movie, and I want to read the lyrics, and I want you to hear this as God speaking to you. This is Jesus speaking these same words to you. Left out in the cold, broken, And we're all alone. So now take my hand and we'll navigate this foreign land. I love you and you love me. In fact, you take my breath away. So you be you and I'll be me if that's what we need to be. If nobody wants you, if nobody needs you, please know that I want you. Please know that I need you. Oh, rejection stings. I understand these things. So let's take our hearts and tape them up before we fall apart. I love you and you love me. In fact, you take my breath away. So you be you and I'll be me if that's what we need to be. If nobody wants you, if nobody needs you, please know that I want you. Please know that I need you. I want to close with these words from the book Unwanted by Jay Stringer, who writes this. The Father who waits for us is not ashamed of us. On the contrary, he is a cheerful and indiscriminate host. He offers invitations to everyone, particularly those whom society deems most unclean, unworthy, and perverse. What should make us most uncomfortable about sin is not our failures, but how loose God is in his table invitations. Can we really be that loved and desired at the very depths of our failures? Sin 
is an opportunity to be loved abundantly. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are that kind of father who invites us all to the table. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you wanted your genealogy and your coming to be something that demonstrated an incredible truth that you welcome all us misfits at the manger. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have come to be present with us, and may we respond to your prompting and not keep ourselves away from coming to the very presence of God, but may we come with all our messiness, the misfits that we are, and experience the incredible love that you offer us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.